Chapter Four, Part Two of Rocks and Their Origins by Grenville A. J. Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Clays, Shales, and Slates, Part Two. Slate. The relations between shale and slate are so obvious that slate may readily be regarded as a very well compacted mud. The clayey material in it, like that of muds, may be ordinary detritus or of volcanic origin its colors repeat those of shales its essential character however is the possession of a cleavage that is of well-developed planes of facility which are often inclined to those of bedding the bedding may be indicated by bands of different coarseness or constitution and these may show crumpling due to pressure that has been exerted on the mass the cleavage however may run right across these bands and the rock as a rule splits far more cleanly along the cleavage planes than a shale does along its planes of bedding the early and historic observations on slaty cleavage have been excellently reviewed by a harker who also provides an independent investigation reference may also be made to a later treatise by c k leith which contains numerous illustrations and to a discussion by g w lamplug d sharp and h c sorby between eighteen forty seven and eighteen fifty three developed the theory that rock cleavage was due to compression in a direction perpendicular to the planes of cleavage and to expansion along them as harker points out it is unlikely that the expansion balances the compression the density of slate about two point seven is a good indication that the porosity or percentage of pore space has been reduced while the mineral changes soon to be referred to are also in favor of greater density c darwin laid stress on the connection between cleavage and the development of flaky minerals such as micas along the cleavage planes the structure ultimately passing into that known as foliation h c sorby urged that compression brings platy particles into parallel positions throughout the mass so that the plates which may consist of kaolin mica or chlorite come to lie with their broad surfaces perpendicular to the direction of compression at the same time any constituents capable of deformation become compressed in this direction become expanded in a direction perpendicular to it and are themselves converted into lens-like forms or plates t mellard reed and p holland have emphasized the part played by crystallization at the close of the process of compression they urge that the platy minerals mica and chlorite are produced during the alteration of the rock and can spread with ease in directions perpendicular to that of compression they thus give rise to slaty cleavage at a late stage in the deformation of the rock these authors it will be seen have developed one of darwin's principal propositions as to the close connection between rock cleavage and foliation and in opposition to sorby considered the platiness of the original constituents to be of less importance in support of their view in regard to the late stage at which cleavage is induced it may be noted that the crystals of pyrite and magnetite that sometimes occur in slates and in allied foliated schists have developed at an earlier date as knots which oppose the cleavage or foliation darwin observed that mineral differences sometimes occur along bands parallel with the cleavage planes in such cases the difference may be largely one of grain shearing having broken down the minerals into a finer state along certain bands of movement shearing of the rock may occur along any of the cleavage planes which are superinduced planes of weakness, and parts of the slate thus slide over others, just as the mineral flakes slide over one another in the directions in which expansion of the rock is possible. 
where traces of the original stratification remain, it is easy to see if rock shearing has occurred. Beds of different composition naturally take on cleavage in very different degrees. Sandy layers show the compression that has taken place by contorting, but they cleave very poorly, and in proportion to the amount of mud present in them. Where clayey and sandy layers alternate, and the direction of the cleavage is oblique to them, it is refracted, as it were, on passing from one layer to the other. It is more highly inclined to the bedding in the sandy layers, and less so in the clayey layers. Hence a cleavage surface forms a fold resembling the shape of an italic S as it traverses each harder bed. Harker and Leith discussed the cause of this from somewhat different points of view. It is probable that such cleavage planes as develop within the hard bed are approximately perpendicular to the direction in which the compressive force acts, because there is in such beds little possibility of lateral creep of the material along the bedding planes. In the softer layers we have to deal not only with a tendency towards the rotation of platy particles until their flat surfaces are perpendicular to the direction of pressure, but also with a tendency of the same particles to flow along the bedding planes. The resultant arrangement gives rise to a cleavage nearer to the bedding planes than that in the more sandy layers. Sometimes, after the cleavage is established, compression folds it, just as strata may be folded. Still greater compression may obliterate it and establish a new cleavage, and all gradations toward this result are traceable. The cleavage layers, again, may be wrinkled into a series of sharp folds, thrust over in one direction, and parting may then take place along the ridges of these folds, which furnish a second series of planes of weakness in the rock. This type of separation has been styled a strain-slip cleavage, and by Leith a fracture cleavage, in distinction from ordinary or flow cleavage. Shearing may take place along it, and the true or flow cleavage planes become thus broken across and faulted. Commercial slates should exhibit none of these structures that interfere with genuine cleavage. An argillaceous rock of uniform grain, compressed evenly over a considerable district, is required for successful slate quarries. Yet all quarrymen will admit that the material varies from point to point, and that the best slate runs in veins. Some of the coarser slates with irregular surfaces, and with splashes of color, such as are provided by limonite, are sought after for their picturesque effect, while slates which do not split readily enough for roofing purposes may have their use for flags, mantel shelves, and billiard tables. Argillaceous Rocks in the Field Obviously, nothing can be more different than the features of a country made of clay when acted on by denudation, and those of one where slate prevails. In the former case, low rounded hills rise, without any definite arrangement, above hollows where rushes spring amid the grass. The streams are muddy, and they readily cut their way down to base level, meandering thenceforth in a clay alluvium. Shales provide boulder features, but crumble rapidly where the climate permits of frost and thawing. They may be protected by more resisting rocks, but provide oozy surfaces underground, over which the higher masses may slide disastrously. Shale beds, when uplifted and folded, slip away in flakes from one another, supplying very ragged and irregular material to the taluses, and exposing shimmering surfaces when damp with rain. Among hilly lands, the passes will often be found to be due to bands of shale, which are cut down by weathering far sooner than the rocks on either hand. In central England, the Leas shales, despite the presence of some limestones, have been worn down almost to a plain, 
wherever the overlying middle Jurassic limestone has been removed. Slates with their ragged edges and resistance to rain play their part in wilder mountain scenery. Frost action destroys them, producing taluses that slip frequently toward the valleys. But the residual crags assume more serrated forms, in contrast with the smooth covering of the lower slopes. The cleavage, when steeply inclined to the horizontal, promotes the cutting of gullies down the mountainsides, and the intervening ribs of rock may easily be mistaken for uptilted strata. The entrance to the Pass of Lanbaris at Dolberdon is a fine picture of slate scenery. Eventually, mountains formed of slate assume hog-backed and rounded forms, but they still, where notched by streamlets, yield sheer cliffs and picturesque ravines. On Boulder Clay The material known as boulder clay presents such distinctive features and is so prevalent in our islands that it deserves a few separate remarks. From a coating a foot or two in thickness, it swells in places to a hundred feet or more and may form the important round-backed hills to which Maxwell Close reserved the name of drumlins. It consists essentially of mixed materials, unsifted by water, huge boulders of various rocks occurring side by side with angular fragments and pebbles of all sizes, set in a groundwork of loamy clay. Sands and gravels are often associated with the boulder clay and result from the local washing of the mass in copious floods of water. The blocks are here on the whole more rounded, and the sandy part of the loam predominates. Blocks of shale and limestone, and even of sandstone and quartzite, occurring in the boulder clay, bear the characteristic striations that we now recognize as due to glacial action. The sand and small stones have, in fact, been held against the larger ones by solid ice, and have cut and grooved their surfaces. Shales and schists have gone to pieces, and with impurities from limestone have provided the clayey groundwork. The whole of the material has been at one time embedded in and moved forward by glacier ice. Though Louis Agassiz developed his glacial theory from studies in Switzerland, he possessed an imagination that ran before the knowledge of his time. Swiss glaciers are now so limited that they are of very little use to us when we seek to explain the origin of boulder clay. In Arctic and Antarctic lands, however, we meet with continental glaciers, many miles in width, moving across lowlands in virtue of the pressure from some great snow dome to which additions are continually being made behind them. Even when fed by diminished snow fields, like those in Spitsbergen, these glaciers dominate the landscape and form the principal rock masses over hundreds of square miles. Such glaciers gather into their lower portions all the loosened material on the hill slopes and valley floors. With the tools thus supplied, further material is plucked from jointed or fissile rocks as the mass moves forward. Freezing and thawing at the base of the great ice sheet, as water flows here and there beneath it, further disintegrate the rocky floor. The broad ice sheet sinks in a mass of broken rock and sludge at one point, and at another drags this mixed material forward as an abrading agent. The lower half of such a glacier, or the whole thickness of it near its front, where surface melting has removed the higher layers, is in reality an agglomerate of stones and mud held together by an ice cement. When an epoch of advance is over, when the ice sheet stagnates and its frozen constituent melts away, it becomes more and more like a boulder clay as time goes on. True boulder clay then forms its surface, while ice remains plentiful below. Since the stony matter is not evenly distributed, some parts of the surface sink more quickly than others through loss of a greater portion of their former bulk. 
roughly circular pits or kettle holes appear in which water gathers the water running from these washes across a part of the boulder clay bears off the mud and leaves bands of sand and gravel the clayey portion thus removed may accumulate as a fine deposit in other outlying pools and is interstratified when the flow of water is temporarily increased with coarser and more sandy layers ultimately the frozen water of the groundwork drains away and only the stones and clay of the ice sheet remain upon the field they form however a very important residue weathering in steep cliffs and pinnacles in the dry air of the arctic lands the boulder clay thus left shows a sharply marked boundary where the edge of the stagnating ice sheet lay it is in fact the surviving part of the complex sheet and now undergoes moulding like other rocks by atmospheric agencies many interesting features of the hills called drumlins cannot be discussed here their arrangement with their longer axes in the direction of the movement of the ice shows that they were moulded in large measure within the ice itself and came to light as it melted away from above downwards they may be regarded as originating in tough and mixed materials ice and stones and clay from the lower layers of the ice sheet which became associated with the purer upper ice in certain episodes of the flow such mingling may occur at an ice fall or where shearing over an obstacle takes place in the former case the upper ice descends into the lower layers in the latter masses from below are pushed up into the higher levels as the forward flow proceeds the masses representing the lower and stone-filled layers are treated just as eyes of coarser material are treated in the fluidal lava or in a rock deformed by metamorphic pressures the purer and more plastic ice moves past and round them and they assume an elongated form when final stagnation and melting have gone on these masses are still separated from one another as rounded hills their bases have settled down upon the ice-worn surface but their flanks and crests retain traces of the moulding action of the purer portions of the complex body styled an ice sheet in recent years great interest has been aroused by researches on boulder clays of ancient date especially those of permocarboniferous age these compacted deposits contain abundant striated boulders and rest on glaciated rock surfaces which have a surprisingly modern aspect when laid bare by denudation the grey-green dwicka conglomerate which is so widely spread through south africa forms kopjes on the borders of the great karoo with spiky crests and irregularly weathered cliffs but its original deposition as a boulder clay has been amply verified it is now moreover been paralleled by a very similar rock discovered by a c coleman in the huronal beds of canada End of chapter four